Chapter Twenty One of the Tavern Knight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Cornwall. The Tavern Knight by Raphael Sabatini. Chapter Twenty One. The Message Kenneth Brought. In bewilderment, Crispin took the outstretched hand of his old fellow Royster. Odd's life, he growled. If to have me waylaid, dragged from my horse, and wounded by those sons of dogs, your myrmidians, by your manner of expressing gratitude, I'd as lief you had let me go unthanked. And yet, Chris, I dare swear you'll thank me before another hour is sped. Ah, man, how cold you are! There's a bottle of strong waters yonder. Then, without completing his sentence, Hogan had seized the blackjack and poured half a glass of its contents, which he handed Crispin. Drink, man, he said briefly, and Crispin, nothing loath, obeyed him. Next, Hogan threw the torn and sodden doublet from his guest's back, pushed a chair over to the table, and bade him sit. Again, nothing loath. Crispin did as he was bidden. He was stiff from long riding, and so, with a sigh of satisfaction, he settled himself down and stretched out his long legs. Hogan slowly took the seat opposite to him and coughed. He was at a loss how to open the parlous subject, how to communicate to Crispin the amazing news upon which he had stumbled. Slife, Hogan, laughed Crispin dreamily. I little thought it was you to those crop ears carried me with such violence. I little thought, indeed, ever to see you again. But you have prospered, you knave, since that night you left Penrith. And he turned his head the better to survey the Irishman. Aye, I have prospered, Hogan assented. My life is a sort of parable of the fatted son and the prodigal calf. They tell me where there is a greater joy in heaven over the repentance of a sinner than plague on it. How does it go? Than over the downfall of a saint, suggested Crispin. I'll swear that's not the text, but any of my troopers could quote it to you. Every man of them is incarnate church militant. He paused, and Crispin laughed softly, then abruptly. And so you were riding to London, said he? How know you that? Faith, I know more, much more. I can even tell you to what house you rode, and on what errand. You were for the sign of the anchor in Thames Street, for news of your son, whom Joseph Ashburn hath told you lives. Crispin sat bolt upright, a look of mingled wonder and suspicion on his face. You were well informed, you gentlemen of the Parliament, he said. On the matter of your errand, the Irishman returned quietly, I am much better informed than are you. Shall I tell you who lives at the sign of the anchor? Not who you've been told lives there, but who really does occupy the house. Hogan paused a second as though awaiting some reply. Then softly he answered his own question. Colonel Pride. And he sat back to await results. There were none. For the moment the name awoke no recollections, conveyed no meaning to Crispin. Who may Colonel Pride be? he asked after a pause. Hogan was visibly disappointed. A certain powerful and vindictive member of the rump, whom son you killed at Worcester. This time the shaft went home. Galliard sprang out of the chair, his brows darkening, and his cheeks pale beyond their wont. Zounds, Hogan, do you mean that Joseph Ashburn was betraying me into this man's hands? You have said it. But— Crispin stopped short. The pallor of his face increased became ashen, and his eyes glittered as though a fever consumed him. 
He sank back into his chair, and setting both hands upon the table before him, he looked straight at Hogan. "'But my son, Hogan, my son,' he pleaded, and his voice was broken as no man had heard it yet. "'Oh, God in heaven!' he cried in a sudden frenzy. "'What hell's work is this?' Beyond his blue lips his teeth were chattering now. His hands shook as he held them, still clenched before him. Then, in a dull, concentrated voice, "'Hogan,' he vowed, "'I'll kill him for it. Fool, blind, pitiful fool that I am!' Then, his face distorted by passion, he broke into a torrent of imprecations that was at length stemmed by Hogan. "'Wait, Chris,' said he, laying his hand upon the other's arm. "'It is not all false. Joseph Aspern sought, it is true, to betray you into the hands of Colonel Pride, sending you to the sign of the anchor with the assurance that there you would have news of your son. That was false, yet not all false. Your son does live, and at the sign of the anchor it is likely that you would have had the news of him you sought. But that news would have come when too late to have been of value to you. Crispin tried to speak, but failed. Then mastering himself by an effort, and in a voice that was oddly shaken, "'Hogan, you are torturing me. What is the sum of your knowledge?' At last the Irishman produced Ashburn's letter to Colonel Pride. "'My men,' said he, "'are patrolling the roads, in wait for a malignant that has incurred the Parliament's displeasure. We have news that he is making for Harwick, where a vessel lies awaiting to carry him to France, and we expect that he will ride this way.' Three hours ago a young man, unable clearly to account for himself, rode into our net and was brought to me. He was the bearer of a letter to Colonel Pride from Joseph Ashburn. He had given my sergeant a wrong name, and betrayed such anxiety to be gone that I deemed his errand a suspicious one, and broke the seal of that letter. You may thank God, Galliard, every night of your life that I did so. And was this youth Kenneth Stewart? asked Crispin. You have guessed it. "'Damn the lad!' he began furiously. Then, repressing himself, he sighed, and in an altered tone, "'No, no,' said he. "'I have grievously wronged him, have wrecked his life, or at least he thinks so now. I can hardly blame him for seeking to be quits with me.' "'The lad,' returned Hogan, "'must himself be a dupe. He can have had no suspicion of the message he carried. Let me read it to you. It will make all clear.' Hogan drew a taper near and spread the paper upon the table, he smoothed it out, and read, "'Honored sir, the bearer of the present should, if he rides well, outstrip another messenger. I have dispatched to you upon a fool's errand, with a letter addressed to one Mr. Lane at the sign of the anchor. The bearer of that is none other than the notorious malignant Sir Crispin Galliard, by whose hand your son was slain under your very eyes at Worcester, whose capture I know that you warmly desire, and with whom I doubt not you will know how to deal.' To us he has been a source of no little molestation. His liberty, in fact, is a perpetual menace to our lives. For some eighteen years this Galliard has believed dead a son that my cousin bore him. News of this son, whom I have just informed him, lives, as indeed he does, is the bait wherewith I have lured him to your address. Forewarned by the present, I make no doubt you will prepare to receive him fittingly. But ere that justice he escaped at Worcester be meted out to him at Tyburn or on Tower Hill, I would give you him that news touching his son, which I am sending to you to receive. Inform him, sir, that his son, Jocelyn Marley, Hogan paused and shot a furtive glance at Galliard, 
The knight was leaning forward now, his eyes strained, his forehead beaded with perspiration, and his breathing heavy. "'Read on,' he begged hoarsely. "'His son, Jocelyn Marley, is the bearer of this letter, the man whom he has injured and who detests him, the youth with whom he has, by a curious chance, been in much a close association, and whom he has known as Kenneth Stewart.' "'God!' grasped Crispin, then with sudden vigor. "'Oh, tis a lie!' he cried. "'A fresh invention of that lying brain to torture me!' Hogan held up his hand. "'There is a little more,' he said, and continued. "'Should he doubt this, bid him look closely into the lad's face, "'and ask him, after he has scrutinized it, what image it evokes. "'Should he still doubt thereafter, thinking the likeness to which he has been singularly blind, "'to be no more than accidental?' Bid them strip the lad's right foot. It bears a mark that I think should convince him. For the rest, honored sir, I beg you to keep all information touching his parentage from the boy himself, wherein I have weighty ends to serve. Within a few days of your receipt of this letter, I look to have the honor of waiting upon you. In the meanwhile, honored sir, believe that while I am, I am your obedient servant, Joseph Ashburn. Across the narrow table the two men's glances met. Hogan's full of concern and pity, Crispin's charged with amazement and horror. A little while they sat thus, then Crispin rose slowly to his feet, and with steps uncertain as a drunkard's he crossed to the window. He pushed it open, and let the icy wind upon his face and head, unconscious of its sting. Moments passed during which the night went over the last few months of his turbulent life since his first meeting at Perth with Kenneth Stewart. He recalled how strangely and how unaccountably he had been drawn to the boy when first he beheld him in the castle yard, and how, owing to a feeling for which he could not account, since the lad's character had little that might commend him to such a man as Crispin, he had contrived that Kenneth should serve in his company. He recalled how at first, ay, and how often afterwards even, he had sought to win the boy's affection, despite the fact that there was naught in the boy that he truly admired and much that he despised. Was it possible that these feelings were dictated by nature to his unconscious mind? It must indeed be so, and the written words of Joseph Ashburn to Colonel Pride were true. Kenneth was indeed his son. The conviction was upon him. He conjured up the lad's face, and a cry of discovery escaped him. How blind he had been not to have seen before the likeness of Alice, his poor butchered girl-wife of eighteen years ago. How dull, never before to have realized that this likeness it was, had drawn him to the boy. He was calm by now, and in his calm he sought to analyze his thoughts, and he was shocked to find that they were not joyous. He yearned, as yet he had yearned that night in Worcester, for the lad's affection, and yet, for all his yearning, he realized that with the conviction that Kenneth was his offspring came a dull sense of disappointment. He was not such a son as the Ray Kelly knight would have had him. Swiftly he put the thought from him. The craven hands that had reared the lad had warped his nature. He would guide it henceforth. He would straighten it out into a nobler shape. Then he smiled bitterly to himself. What manner of man was he to train a youth to loftiness and honor? He, a debauched ruler with a nickname for which had he any sense of shame, he would have blushed. Again he remembered the lad's disposition toward himself. But these he thought, he hoped, he knew that it would be able now to overcome. He closed the window and turned to face his companion. He was himself again and calm, for all that his face was haggard beyond its wont. Hogan, where is the boy? 
I have detained him in the end. Will you see him now? At once, Hogan, I am convinced. The Irishman crossed the chamber, and opening the door he called an order to the trooper waiting in the passage. Some minutes they waited, standing with no word uttered between them. At last steps sounded in the corridor, and a moment later Kenneth was rudely thrust into the room. Hogan signed to the trooper, who closed the door and withdrew. As Kenneth entered, Crispin advanced a step, then paused, his eyes devouring the land and receiving in exchange a glance that was full of malevolence. "'I might have known, sir, that you were not far away,' he exclaimed bitterly, forgetting for the moment how he had left Crispin behind him on the previous night. "'I might have guessed that my detention was your work.' "'Why so?' asked Crispin quietly, his eyes ever scanning the lad's face with a pathetic look. "'Because it is your way, I know not why, to work my ruin in all things. Not satisfied with involving me in that business at Castle Marley, you must needs cross my path again when I am about to make amends, and so blight my last chance. My God, sir, am I ever to be rid of you? What harm have I done you?' A spasm of pain, like a ripple over water, crossed the knight's swart face. If you but consider, Kenneth, he said, speaking very quietly, you must see the injustice of your words. Since when has Crispin Galliard served the Parliament, that round-headed trooper should do his bidding as you suggest. And touching that business at Sheringham, you were over-hard with me. It was a compact you made, and but for which you forget that you had been carrying these three weeks. Would to heaven that I had been, the boy burst out, sooner than pay such a price for keeping my life. As for my presence here, Crispin continued, leaving the outburst unheeded, it has naught to do with your detention. You lie. Hogan caught his breath with a sharp hiss, and a dead silence followed. That silence struck terror into Kenneth's heart. He encountered Crispin's eyes, bent upon him with a look he could not fathom, and much would he now have given to recall the two words that had burst from him in the heat of his rage. He bethought him of the unscrupulous, deadly character attributed to the man to whom he had addressed them, and in his coward's fancy he saw already payment demanded. Already he pictured himself lying cold and stark in the streets of Waltham, with a sword wound through his middle. His face went gray and his lips trembled. Then Galliard spoke at last, and the mildness of his tone filled Kenneth with a new dread. In his experience of Crispin's ways he had come to look upon mildness as a man's most dangerous phase. "'You are mistaken,' Crispin said. "'I spoke the truth. It is a habit of mine. Happily the only gentleman habit left me. I repeat, I have had naught to do with your detention. I arrived here half an hour ago, as the captain will inform you, and I was conducted hither by force, having been seized by his men, even as you were seized. No,' he added with a sigh, "'it was not by my hand that detained you.' It was the hand of fate. Then suddenly changing his voice to a more vehement key, Know you on what errand you ride to London, he demanded, to betray your father into the hands of his enemies, to deliver him up to the hangman. Kenneth's eyes grew wide, his mouth fell open, and a frown of perplexity drew his brows together. Dully, uncomprehendably, he met Sir Crispin's sad gaze. "'My father,' he gasped at last. "'Sdeath, sir, what is it you mean? "'My father has been dead these ten years. "'I scarce remember him.' "'Crispin's lips moved, but no word did he utter. 
and then with a sudden gesture of despair he turned to Hogan, who stood apart, a silent witness. "'My God, Hogan,' he cried, "'how shall I tell him?' In answer to the appeal, the Irishman turned to Kenneth. "'You have been in error, sir, touching your parentage,' quoth he bluntly. "'Alan Stewart of Blanocky was not your father.' Kenneth looked from one to the other of them. "'Sirs, is this a jest?' he cried, reddening. Then, remarking at length the solemnity of their countenances, he stopped short. Crispin came close up to him, and placed a hand upon his shoulder. The boy shrank visibly beneath the touch, and again an expression of pain crossed the poor ruffler's face. "'Do you recall, Kenneth,' he said slowly, almost sorrowfully, "'the story that I told you that night in Worcester when we sat waiting for dawn and the hangman?' The lad nodded vacantly. "'Do you remember the details?' Do you remember I told you how, when I swooned beneath the stroke of Joseph Ashburn's sword, the last words I heard were those in which he bade his brother slit the throat of the babe in the cradle? You were yourself present yesternight at Castle Marleigh, when Joseph Ashburn told me Gregory had been mercifully inclined, that my child had not died, that if I gave him his life, he would restore him to me. You remember? Again Kenneth nodded. A vague, numbing fear was creeping around his heart, and his blood seemed chilled by it and stagnant. With fascinating eyes he watched the knight's face, drawn and haggard. It was a trap that Joseph Ashburn set for me, yet he did not altogether lie. The child Gregory had indeed spared, and it seems from what I have learned within the last half-hour that he entrusted his rearing to Alan Stewart of Balanaki, seeking afterwards, I take it, to wed him to his daughter, so that should the king come to his own again, they should have the protection of a Marley who had served his king. "'You mean,' the lad almost whispered, and his accents were unmistakably of horror, "'you mean that I am your—oh, God, I'll not believe it!' he cried out with such sudden loathing and passion that Crispin recoiled as though he had been struck. A dull flush crept into his cheeks to fade upon the instant and gave place to a pallor if possible, intenser than before. "'I'll not believe it, I'll not believe it,' the boy repeated, as if seeking by that reiteration to shut out a conviction by which he was beset. "'I'll not believe it,' he cried again, and now his voice had lost its passionate vehemence, and was sunk almost to a moan. "'I found it hard to believe myself,' was Crispin's answer, and his voice was not free from bitterness. "'But I have a proof here that seems incontestable,' even had I not the proof of your face to which I have been blind these months. Blind with the eyes of my body, at least, the eyes of my soul saw and recognized you when first they fell on you in Perth. The voice of the blood ordered me then to your side, and though I heard its call, I understood not what it meant. Read this letter, boy, the letter that you were to have carried to Colonel Pride. With his eyes still fixed and a gaze of stupefaction upon Galliard's face, Kenneth took the paper. Then slowly, involuntarily almost, it seemed, he dropped his glance to it and read. He was long in reading, as though the writing presented difficulties, and his two companions watched him the while and waited. At last he turned the paper over, and examined seal and superscription, as if suspicious that he held a forgery. But in some subtle, mysterious way, that voice of the blood, perchance to which Crispin had alluded, he felt conviction stealing down upon his soul. Mechanically he moved across to the table and sat down. Without a word, and still holding the crumpled letter in his clenched hand, he set his elbows on the table, 
and pressing his temples to his palms, he sat there dumb. Within him a very volcano raged, and its fires were fed with loathing. Loathing for this man whom he had ever hated, yet never as he hated him now, knowing him to be his father. It seemed as if all the wrongs which Crispin had done him during the months of their acquaintanceship, he had now added afresh, and culminating wrong by discovering this parentage. He sat and thought, and his soul grew sick. He probed for some flaw, sought for some mistake that might have been made, and yet the more he thought, the more he dwelt upon his youth in Scotland, the more convinced was he that Crispin had told him the truth. Preeminent argument of conviction to him was the desire of the Ashburns that he should marry Cynthia. Oft he had marveled that they, wealthy and even powerful, selfish and ambitious, should have selected him, the skin of an obscure and impoverished Scottish house, as a bridegroom for their daughter. The news now before him made their motives clear. Indeed, no other motive could exist. No other explanation could there be. He was the heir of Castle Marleigh, and the usurpers sought to provide against the day when another revolution might oust them and restore the rightful owners. Some elation his shallow nature felt at realizing this, but that elation was short-lived, and dashed by the thought that this ruler, this debauchee, this drunken, swearing, roaring tavern knight, was his father. Dashed by the knowledge that meanwhile the Parliament was master, and that whilst matters stood so, the Ashburns could defy, could even destroy him, did they learn how much he knew. Dashed by the memory that Cynthia, whom in his selfish way, out of his love for himself, he loved, was lost to him for all time. And here, swinging in a circle, his thoughts reverted to the cause of this. Crispin Galliard, the man who had betrayed him into yesternight's foul business, and destroyed his every chance of happiness, the man whom he hated, and whom, had he possessed the courage as he was possessed by the desire, he had risen up and slain, the man that now announced himself his father. And, thinking thus, he sat on in silent, resentful vexation. He started to feel a hand upon his shoulder, and to hear the voice of Galliard evidently addressing him, yet using a name that was new to him. "'Jocelyn, my boy,' the voice trembled. "'You have thought, and you have realized, is it not so? I too thought, and thought brought me conviction, that what that paper tells is true.' Vaguely, when the boy remembered that Jocelyn was the name the letter gave him, he arose abruptly, and brushed the caressing hand from his shoulder. His voice was hard. Possibly the knowledge that he had gained told him that he had nothing to fear from this man, and in that assurance his craven soul grew brave and bold and arrogant. I have realized naught beyond the fact that I owe you nothing but unhappiness and ruin. By a trick, by a low fraud, you enlisted me into a service that has proved my undoing. Once a cheat, always a cheat. What credit in the face of that can I give this paper? He cried, talking wildly. To me it is incredible. Nor do I wish to credit it, for though it were true, what then? What then? he repeated, raising his voice into accents of defiance. Grief and amazement were blended in Galliard's glance, and also maybe some reproach. Hogan, standing squarely upon the hearth, was beset by the desire to kick Master Kenneth, or Master Jocelyn, into the street. His lip curled into a sneer of ineffable contempt, for his shrewd eyes read to the bottom of the lad's mean soul, and saw there clearly writ the confidence that emboldened him to voice that insult, 
to the man he must know for his father. Standing there, he compared the two, marveling deeply how they came to be father and son. A likeness he saw now between them, yet a likeness that seemed but to mark the difference. The one harsh, resolute, and manly for all his reckless living and his misfortunes. The other mild, effeminate, hypocritical, and shifty. He read it not on their countenance alone, but in every line of their figures as they stood, and in his heart he cursed himself for having been the instrument to disclose the relationship in which they stood. The youth's insolent question was followed by a spell of silence. Crispin could not believe that he had heard it aright. At last he stretched out his hands in a gesture of supplication. He who throughout his thirty-eight years of life, and despite the misfortunes that had been his, had never yet stooped to plead from any man. "'Jocelyn!' he cried, and the pain in his voice must have melted a heart of steel. "'You are hard. Have you forgotten the story of my miserable life, the story that I told you in Worcester? Can you not understand how suffering may destroy all that is lofty in a man, how the forgetfulness of the wine-cup may come to be his only consolation, the hope of vengeance his only motive for living on, withholding him from self-destruction?' Can you not picture such a life, and can you not pity and forgive much of the wreck that it may make of a man once virtuous and honorable? Pleadingly he looked into the lad's face. It remained cold and unmoved. I understand, he continued brokenly, that I am not such a man as any lad might welcome for a father. But you who know what my life has been, Jocelyn, you can surely find it in your heart to pity. I had naught that was good or wholesome to live for, Jocelyn not to curb the evil moods that sent me long evil ways, to seek forgetfulness and reparation. But from tonight, Jocelyn, my life in you must find a new interest, a new motive. I will abandon my old ways. For your sake, Jocelyn, I will seek again to become what I was, and ye shall have no cause to blush for your father. Still the lad stood silent. Jocelyn, my God, do I talk in vain? cried the wretched man. Have you no heart, no pity, boy? At last the youth spoke. He was not moved. The agony of this strong man, the broken pleading of one whom he had ever known arrogant and strong, had no power to touch his mean, selfish mind, consumed as it was by the contemplation of his undoing, magnified a hundredfold which this man had wrought. You have ruined my life, was all he said. I will rebuild it, Jocelyn, cried Galliard eagerly. I have friends in France, friends high in power, who lack neither the means nor the will to aid me. You are a soldier, Jocelyn. As much a soldier as I am a saint, sneered Hogan to himself. Together we will find service in the armies of Louis, Crispin pursued. I promise it, service wherein you shall gain honor and renown. There we will abide until this England shakes herself out of a rebellious nightmare. Then, when the king shall come to his own, Castle Marleigh will be ours again. Trust in me, Jocelyn. Again his arms went out appealingly. Jocelyn, my son. But the boy made no move to take the outstretched hands, gave no sign of relenting. His mind nurtured its resentment, cherished it indeed. And Cynthia, he asked coldly. Crispin's hands fell to his sides. They grew clenched, and his eyes lighted of a sudden. Forgive me, Jocelyn, I had forgotten. I understand you now. Yes, I dealt sorely with you there, and you were right to be resentful. What, after all, am I to you, 
What can I be compared with her whose image fills your soul? What is aught in the world to a man compared with a woman on whom his heart is set? Do I not know it? Have I not suffered for it? But mark me, Jocelyn, and he straightened himself suddenly. Even in this, that which I have done, I will undo. As I have robbed you of your mistress, so will I win her back for you, I swear it. And when that is done, when thus every harm I have caused you is repaired, then, Jocelyn, perhaps you will come to look with less repugnance upon your father, and to feel less resentments toward him. You promise much, sir, quoth the boy, with an ill-repressed sneer. How will you accomplish it? Hogan grunted audibly. Crispin drew himself up, erect, lethe, and supple, a figure to inspire confidence in the most despairing. He placed a hand, nervous and strong as steel, upon the boy's shoulder, and the clutch of his fingers made Jocelyn wince. "'Lo, though your father be fallen,' said he sternly, "'he has never yet broken his word. "'I have pledged you mine, and to-morrow I shall set out to perform what I have promised. "'I shall see you ere I start. "'You will sleep here, will you not?' "'Jocelyn shrugged his shoulders. "'It signifies little where I lie.' "'Crispin smiled sadly and sighed. "'You have no faith in me yet, but I shall earn it, or—' "'And his voice fell suddenly, or rid you of a loathsome parent.' Hogan, can you find him quarters? Hogan replied that there was the room he had already been confined in, that he could lie in it. And deeming that there was nothing to be gained by waiting, he thereupon led the lad from the room and down the passage. At the foot of the stairs the Irishman paused in the act of descending, and raised the taper aloft so that its light might fall full upon the face of his companion. Were I your father, said he grimly, I would kick you from one end of Waltham to the other by way of teaching you filial piety. And were you not his son, I would this night read you a lesson you'd never live to practice. I would set you to sleep a last long sleep in the kennels of Waltham streets. But since you are, marvelous though it seemed, his offspring, and since I love him and may not therefore hurt you, I must rest content with telling you that you are the vilest thing that breathes. You despise him for a royster, for a man of loose ways. Let me, who have seen something of men, and who read you to-night to the very dregs of your contemptible soul, tell you that compared with you he is a very god. Come, you white-livered cur, he ended abruptly, I will light you to your chamber. When presently Hogan returned to Crispin, he found the tavern knight, that man of iron in whom none had ever seen a trace of fear or weakness, seated with his arms before him on the table and his face buried in them, sobbing like a poor, weak woman. End of chapter 21 Recorded by Rick Cornwall